But if you have a healthy respect for debt, which I did not when I really struggled with money in the early 90s, if you don't have that healthy respect, it's easy to fall into a trap. Yes. And the trap is if I just make a little more money, my debt problem will solve itself. That is a lie. Which is why we talk about negotiating and making more money is chapter three. After we talk about how to get a budget, lock down your expenses and have a vision because of the fact that the real key to winning is building a difference, building a delta between the amount you make and the amount that you spend. The wider you can make that gap, the easier your life is going to be. But I always thought that if I just made a little more money when I was in debt, that my debt problems would be solved. Not the case. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am very glad that you're here today. Let me throw a statistic at you, friends. Did you know that 41% of people who make over $200,000 per year still cry about money? That's right. Even people making multiple six figures way above the national average doing quite well are still so stressed out about money that it brings them to tears. That's what I talk about this week with my guest, Joe Saul Sihai, who is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast and the author of a new book called Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. Joe was in town in Atlanta here. In fact, he stayed with me at my house right here in the guest room where I'm recording this right now on a national book tour to promote the book. And, you know, we talk about this and Joe shared that these kinds of statistics that indicate the kind of pain we're in as a society when it comes to money, that, that this is his why. This is the motivation that makes him want to make money management skills accessible and fun to consume. And those are the guiding principles of both his new book and the Stacking Benjamins podcast. These statistics come from a document called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans. And here's a few more of them. 37% of Americans have gone to sleep hungry because they didn't have enough money to buy food. 12% have stolen something and 5% admit to having taken half-eaten food out of a garbage can and then putting it in their mouths. This is really scary. The Secret Financial Lives of Americans goes on to say that we're living dual lives, that on the one hand, we are really living close to the edge, financially speaking, and yet we're projecting the images that we're doing really well, that we're living our best lives, and that we're you know, consuming way above our ability to pay for it. And this is Joe's why. Today, Joe and I, two handsome bald men, discuss the ups and downs of money, including how Joe fixed the financial calamity in his own life. Early in his adulthood, he was a young financial advisor. He was living a lot. He didn't have two pennies to rub together, and yet he was giving other people, other families, financial advice. How crazy is that? We talk about what you should want and look for in a financial advisor and wealth manager, what you should pay for those services, and then the pros and cons of managing your own money. Really love having Joe on the show. He is a good guy, and he's in the personal finance game for all the right reasons, and I think he's doing good work for his audience and those that read his book. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Joe Saul Sihai. Joe Saul Sihai, welcome back to Crazy Money. Oh, we're starting. We're starting. All right. So you record a show in your basement. I do. In your mom's basement. Mom's basement. But today, you're in my basement. It's meta. Why are you in my basement? Why are you at my house? I I came to visit. I wanted to see the Ollinger Ranch. That was my whole goal, to see the compound. What's it like to sleep in the world headquarters of the Crazy Money Podcast? I, Did you feel a tingle? Was it like the Lincoln bedroom at all? 
I could smell the money. All, all I could smell was money. That crazy comedian slash podcasting money that you get is unbelievable. You know, it's funny. I, I keep a lot of the checks that I've gotten for comedy over the years. I've kept like hundreds of checks. Because why cash them? Well, no, no, no. I mean, I cash them and then I just leave them on my desk because it's a reminder, you know, the $20 checks I have for spots here and there and then you know the big ones for like 40 or or 120 are reminders that i'm getting paid to do what i want to do even if they're paltry but i shredded them all last week i feel this sense of loss when i see people that do these things they have the foresight to mark the moments Mm -hmm. that are important and i'm always just too damn busy enjoying them and then i go oh i should have taken a picture we should have I was with my son last week at our Seattle tour stop, and we took one picture the whole time I was with him. And I didn't regret it until I was on a plane out of there. That, you know, I was so busy. He came to our event. People were chatting with him. He's meeting all kinds of new friends that we were both making. And they're asking your son, what's it like to be the son of the founder of Stacking Benjamin's podcast? I feel bad for him. You would. (laughs) Well, you to live I- in that, that shadow, <laughs> that long shadow that you cast. How can he ever be his own man, Joe? Were you groaning at dad jokes when you were three, Nick? <laughs> you know, my uh, I did feel bad for him, though, because I made a decision early on to be very truthful about my family. And Cheryl and I talked about that, about using real names. Mm-hmm. And not like anybody cares, right. you know? But there is this line, and you decide whether you're going to cross it or not. We decided when I was on TV in Detroit, that I would use my kids' real names. But my son is at his first day working at Microsoft as an engineer. Mm-hmm. And about 10.30 in the morning, this guy comes over and goes, Nick. And he's never seen this guy before. <laughs> and he's, he's like, hi. And he said, well, I've been waiting for you to get here. I've been looking at the new people and where they're working. And I finally saw your name. And so I just wanted to tell you that we're big fans of your dad's show. We have, uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a personal finance club and we talk about stuff that happens on your dad's show and some other shows. And so you're welcome at any time. Oh my gosh. And I felt bad. I mean, I seriously felt bad for him because, you know, he got drafted into that. He didn't yeah. decide to have this guy come to his desk. He won the genetic lottery. Totally. Yes. As Warren Buffett would say, the son of Dr. Cheryl and Mr. (laughs) Joe Saul, see hi. He pinches himself every day. (laughs) So you're on a book tour. Let's talk about your book for a little bit. You've got a new book called uh, Stacked. What's Stacked all about? Yeah, the subtitle is... By the way, Stacked is also a term from the 50s, (laughs) meaning a lady who looks good in a sweater. Yeah. Was there, was that the double entendre intentional? You know, our agent actually came up with the final title and she's a huge feminist. So I'm, she's like, if I could talk about boobs, that would be, that would be great. Let's see if how we can we get combine, some. How do we combine personal finance and evolutionary advantages for females? Well, you and I, when we talk, when we don't, we don't talk enough, but when we do talk, we always talk about how do we bring more people along for the ride, right? Yeah. And I think that if you just do some sexual innuendo yes. <laughs> along with your finance, yes. you know, like when you're 13 and you're on Cinemax and you're skimming, <laughs> you're, you're fast forwarding because yeah. you're just looking for one little, yeah. little scene. We didn't have, not Cinem- that I would, we didn't that. have Cinemax. We didn't even have cable until I was out of college. So 
you know, but we would go over, I remember going over to neighbors' houses who had cable but not Cinemax and trying to watch movies through the squiggly lines. <laughs> <laughs> that's a reference only people over 45. Of a certain age. That's right. You're not going to get because it. Because for 35 seconds, it would it would become clear. You'd be like, I think that was, I think that's, I think that was a naked lady. I think, I think, I think, I think maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, those, those days were, I had a heck of a time with puberty and with that. <laughs> No, with that whole, with I did with that whole stage of life. Well, I'll tell you the reason I have a hyphenated name, uh-huh. which is not at all where we wanted to go. Because you're a feminist. Yes, it is because I'm Catholic, uh-huh. and Catholic Sunday school is called CCD. Mm-hmm. And I was in my class in eighth grade, and I'm having a horrible time. I felt like my friends were from the moon. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Yeah, I was having a tough time in this couple jim holmes and trina boyle were our instructors and they were fantastic and they really 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 helped me with what might have been in eighth grade the darkest year it it was dark Mm. like i was thinking i mean not to go way way down into the depths but i was i was really you know not contemplating suicide but i thought about it Mm. in eighth grade and it was it was tough but anyway they really helped me through it and one day Jim said, he said, hey, you know, we're getting married and uh, we're going to combine our names. We're going to become Boyle Holmes. And I, because I had no filter and I still don't, I raised my hand and said, why would somebody do something stupid like that? Right. And he said, because it's not my team or her team, it's our team. And I really believe that it should be both of us. And so when I asked Cheryl to marry me, I said, you know, why don't we combine our names? Mm. So anyway. That's great. uh, Yeah. So I don't even know why I told you that story, but- I hope Stacy Seidel's Ollinger doesn't listen to this episode. I'd have to change all my monograms, <laughs> my monogram sweaters. I had these clients that she really wanted to do it. They mm-hmm. both wanted to combine their names, but her name was Amy Berry and his name was Lawrence Ware. And she's like, there's no way we could do it. I can't be Amy Berry Ware. Berry Ware. And I can't be Amy Wareberry. Mm. So yeah, that's not a great, she could be. It sounds like a toy you bite them all. It doesn't all. roll off the tongue like Salsi High. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Smoothly off the tongue. So we're yes. talking about stacked. Book tour, yes. Yeah. And why? You know, like you, I get to interview a bunch of really interesting people, and we're on nearing episode 1200 of the Stacking Benjamin Show. Wow. And the one thing that is always always been part of the landscape that I didn't think existed enough was an on-ramp to these conversations that we like to have, that you like to have on crazy money, that a lot of my friends like to have that are money geeks. And I saw this study called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans, and it was filled with a bunch of disturbing statistics, Mm -hmm. percentages of people that say that they would trade sex for money the number of people that say that they would eat food or have eaten food out of a dumpster, they've stolen food. You know, at work, you always are accusing people of stealing your food out. Somebody's stealing food out of the refrigerator. And I don't remember the number, but there was a big percentage of people that say that they've stolen food. I've got them here. 37% of Americans have gone to sleep hungry because they didn't have money. 12% have stolen something. 5% admit to having taken half-eaten food out of a garbage can. And that's not like, George Costanza picking a clean eclair off the top of a garbage can. No, yeah. It's like needing to eat out of the garbage can. Yeah. 
These were tough, but the one that really rang true to me that I see all the time is 150 million people say that they cry about their money. 41% of Americans, or 41% of those surveyed, yeah. And you would think that most of those people are people making very little money, people living paycheck to paycheck, but of people making over $250,000 a year, nearly half of those people, Paul, say that they cry. Yeah, I got that stat wrong. Actually, I'm looking at it here. 52% of Americans admit having cried because they didn't have enough money. But surprisingly, for those earning over $200,000 a year, 41% have cried because they didn't have enough. Why is that? Why does somebody making over $200,000 a year have to cry about money? I think it's because... And the only expertise that I have is 16 years of being a financial planner in rooms with lots of these people, Mm -hmm. is that your values, you have this existential angst that your values are going one way and your money's going a whole different way. Talk about that. What does that mean? I think sometimes, you know, we spend a lot of time chasing what other people want from us. I think we spend a lot of time chasing these values that we think we should have because everybody else has them and we're told to have them. Yeah. I was very lucky. I got to work in the office with the number one financial planner when I was at American Express and he was brilliant. And he had this thing that he would do to get past what he would call the BS goals. Mm -hmm. And the BS goals were goals like, well, I want to retire. I want to put my kids through college. It's almost like, you know, the doctor hits your knee with that hammer and it's just reflexive. You say retirement college is what we do. You have to say that. And he would use this technique he called the deli counter technique. You go to the deli counter and ask for some ham. And then what does the deli counter person say? What else? Mm -hmm. What else? And he said he could always tell what the real goals are, the things that they valued when after they got through with these, these goals they thought everybody should have. And they'd light up. They go, oh, you know what I've always wanted? I've wanted a second house in Vermont. Right. I really, really hate my job. Man, I would love to work part-time somewhere, anywhere else. I would love to figure out, I've always wanted to go to art school. I want to go to, and people then, they start smiling, they lean forward. They then find the goals that are really worth chasing. Well, you still haven't answered the question, why do people cry about not having enough money if they're making $200,000 a year? It's because we know we're spending money on things that we really don't care about. Because we're chasing other people's what's ideas that? of what... Yeah, what's that phrase? I'm spending money to impress people that I don't care about or yeah. don't care about me. And doing a job that I don't like to be able to afford things that don't make me happy. Th- that are not at all and not at all it. Yeah, so I actually started the book there. There's an idea that we all practice every year called New Year's resolutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're recording this a quarter of the way into the year. And I bet nobody listening is still working on their New Year's resolutions. And the reason is, is the same reason people cry about their money is we do these things in a vacuum. When we start doing, when we start chasing stuff, we chase it in a vacuum. And we don't put what really matters to us out there first. And I believe the way to truly do this, Paul, is through something that looks a lot like a vision board. You know, people tell you in your career, in your life, get a vision board of things that you really value and put it in front of you every day. I found when I was a financial planner, and this is something I've never seen from another financial book or any other finance person that I've interviewed. I'm sure somebody else is doing it, but you put your goals almost like it's on a vision board. So take a piece of printer paper landscape and on the left, make yourself a stick figure and whoever you're planning with, and then draw a line across the paper that represents the rest of your life. And now ask yourself, what do I want? And start plotting those things. Okay. I want to retire on X date. 
I want to put my kids through college, draw a couple of things there. Keep asking yourself that, what if, what else, yeah. what else, what else? And put all those things on. And then when you get them all out together, ask yourself these questions. So let's say Paul wants to retire at 55. What's that going to cost? So I would just point at these circles when I was a financial planner. I would do this on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, what is, what is this retirement goal going to cost? And the answer, 99% of the time? Don't know. No idea. Who knows? I have no idea. How much money do we need to save today? And what rate of return do we need on that money? I don't know. But what's cool is once we know those two things, and obviously those are going to be a little bit fluid, but we can get directionally there. It's easier to pick investments. Everybody has FOMO about which investments to pick. There's this huge world of investments and I hear about these good ones. I'm at the club and my buddy tells me about this phenomenal investment I got to get into. Yeah, whatever. Somebody's got a startup. GameStop. Yeah, but even on a local level, you feel lucky because somebody's starting a company and it sounds like a great idea and they're asking you to invest. Sounds like a great idea. Should I invest? And we get rid of all this angst and we go, okay, I need an 8% rate of return to make this thing I value reality. Will this do 8%? The cool thing now is it can still be a good investment and not be for you. Yeah, It can be okay. But you take all these different circles, these different things, and you ask yourself what they all cost. You draw lines back to today. And then you say, can I get all of them? And if I can get all of them, then I'm doing something wrong because I'm not living a big enough life. There are things I could be doing that I'm not doing. I get as frustrated with people, and I think this is why some people cry. I get frustrated with people that are just bored with life. They're like, I have enough. I have enough. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm all right. I'm going to be good. And I always think, good for you. You know what you could be doing? Like how much excitement could be in your life bringing more people along with you? The help you could be in your community? And it's funny because people that I met and counseled that were really, really bored and had enough would all of a sudden get excited when we'd finally start talking about how they can make a bigger difference outside of just themselves. Mm-hmm. But that's not most people. Most people, according to this study, are people that don't have enough to reach all those. And if I don't have enough to reach all those, now, Paul, we start having these fantastic discussions about what we value. Do I really value paying 100% of my kids' college versus retiring at 55? Which one's more important? <laughs> to you or to your kid? <laughs> Who cares about the kid? To me, <laughs> of course. Maybe I teach my kids to save at a young age and I help them get jobs in high school and they save some the money toward college themselves. Maybe like a guy I met in Tampa who's 18 and decided he was going to pay for all of his school himself, decided I don't want student loans yet. I want to spend some time being an entrepreneur. You and I know he's going to get beat up a little bit, but when he goes to college, if he goes... He's going to know why he's there and he's not going to be wasting money. No, or time. Probably not going to be partying quite as hard as the 18-year-olds who have just broken loose from mom and dad's house. Have you seen those studies, by the way, that people over 25, I think it is, that go to college afterwards, after a few years of work, have a way higher GPA. Oh, I believe that. Way higher GPA. You know, J.D. Vance, not that I want to advocate for or against his politics, at least not on this platform. You know, his book, Hillbilly Elegy talks Mm. about, he went to the army instead of going, as I recall, he went to the army before going to college because he simply didn't have the money. And then he got to college and he's like, I want to get done as fast as I possibly can. Yeah. And I'm going to take, you know, like twice the course load that I need to take. I'm not here to party. I'm here to get done with college. 
Well, and I also, I went back to school as an older person. I went back to school at 40 for a bit. And when I was there, it was a post-bachelor's teaching program mm-hmm. to get my teaching certificate. And I'll tell you, I knew more about what the professor really wanted as well, mm-hmm. just because of maturity, right. I think. And by the way, it was sad. And if you're a professor that says, don't do this, he would consistently or near the end of the term point me out as the top end of the bell curve. <laughs> and by the way, the hate looks that I would get from yeah. people. Curve buster. I was the curve buster and they couldn't stand it. He would always point out that when I did best on a test or, right. yeah, it was bad. It's not fair. Joe's not even in a fraternity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he didn't get loaded last night like I did. All right. Why is it important to talk about personal finance with leading with a sense of humor? Because we leave so many people behind because they feel like the win condition is so important that we freeze up. You know, I love this idea of gamification. The idea for this book, because I want to warn people a little bit about my book, it's not like a lot of personal finance books. It is made with gamification in mind. One of the ideas for this book was the Cub Scout Wolf Guide. Okay, and what's the, that? There's the Cub Scouts and there's the Boy Scouts after. So it's Boy Scouts for young kids. And when I was, I think, 10, I was in the wolf program. So you have these different levels, but it's all gamification. The Cub Scouts were doing gamification way before these app makers were gamifying things. Badges and stuff. Yeah, what I love about gamifying things is instead of freezing up and going, this is super important, and money is super important, but when we freeze up, we do nothing. And as you know, it's far better to try something out and to fail and to fail young. This kid, this 18-year-old kid I met in Tampa that I was just telling you about, he told me a story that the biggest money mistake he'd made yet was he put too much money in Dogecoin. Uh huh. How great at age 18 to put $400 in Dogecoin, lose half of it, right? Do it while it's all up and high. And then Dogecoin comes crashing down and realize maybe I shouldn't have put most of my net worth, $400, into this. Right. I mean, this dude at 18 learns a great, great lesson doing that. But that's gamification. Get rid of all of the angst that we have and instead think in terms of let's try new stuff. And well, the Cub Scouts were brilliant at this. They start off with tools you're going to need, succinctly tell you how to do the thing. At the bottom, you have to check some boxes to show proficiency So it's not about what you know, it's about what you do. And then at the bottom, there's a place for your mom to sign it and you get a badge. Right, yeah. And our book is organized in achievement order. It starts off with really easy achievements. The first quarter of the book is stuff that anybody who's been around the block knows all this stuff, how to get your credit in order, how to stack your first Benjamin. The bottom of the book are the very advanced achievements And those are how to hire financial advisors that won't bleed you dry, why you need advisors, (laughs) how to get rich quicker. We have a chapter on on that, a chapter on how to look at tax advantages and take advantage of the tax code. So those are at the the back. But gamification, to directly answer your question, Paul, what I really, really want to see more of is people have this growth, this is such a buzzword, but a growth mentality. It's not even a word, it's a phrase, isn't it? A growth phrase. Yes. Yes, or a a buzz phrase, a growth mentality. Because if I think, instead of thinking like we do on social media every day, that I have to be right, I have to be, I have to defend this crazy position, I have to be right. Instead of we start asking ourselves, where am I wrong? 
what don't I know? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to not only live a fuller life, we're also going to be be more open to try stuff, which I think is the key to a lot of financial success. Most of the personal finance people out there seem like unforgiving taskmasters. <laughs> yeah. Where does this book in the podcast Stacking Benjamins fit into the landscape of, if you have a two-by-two two matrix with funny and effective as the matrices, where does Stacking Benjamins fit into that? I am not worried about tips per minute, <laughs> in, which is what the big money geeks want, right? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the rip on our show, which I will always uh, be okay with, is that we clown around too much. But my goal with this project and with the podcast is not to necessarily teach you anything. Right. It's to build the surround sound that makes you open to teaching. I think the last time I was here, you and I talked about the inspiration for the show is this thing called Car Talk. Mm-hmm. I was mowing my lawn and I'm listening to these guys click and clack that had this wonderful the show. Tappet Brothers, yeah. For such a long time. And uh, one of those guys died, right? They did. But you know what's cool? I heard the show again just a few weeks ago. They're still playing these reruns yeah. because the stuff that they did was very evergreen and laughing about cars. You know, cars intimidate people. Right. And they had so many people that weren't, quote, car people that listened to their show because they made it approachable. Instead of saying that your alternator belt was broken, they'd say, does your engine sound like this? Mm-hmm. You know what that means? That means and yeah. it was hilarious. And I was listening to that show and I said, you know what? I want to do that with money. I want to envelop people in money culture. And if I can be an airport, you know, Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman want to be the last word in personal finance. They want to be the expert that you come to and you ask the question and they yell at you about your money. I don't want to be the last word. I want to be the airport. And there's a bunch of airplanes that I have curated and you choose which airplane you get on, but I want to show you that there's a bunch of voices and and there's a bunch of different ways to do this. And for me, that's super fun. And it's also, I think, something that is uh, sorely needed in the world of personal finance. Because for you, like you said, Taskmaster, I think we see it that way. I had a client that said, you know what, Joe, I really like working with you, but this feels like the dentist every time I come. <laughs> like I floss for three weeks, I get all my paperwork together, I get everything together and I come and I lay it out in front of you and I'm sure you're going to yell at me and you don't. And I feel great when I leave and I feel like our money's going the right way and things are, things are going well, but it's hell getting me here. I think a lot of us feel that way about money. It's like our weight or our physical fitness. Like we know it's an issue, but we want to ignore it. We don't want to pay attention to it because we're afraid of what we might find if we look too closely at it. Yeah, which brings me to a conversation you and I had earlier today about going to the gym and hiring a trainer Mm -hmm. that's incredibly expensive. And you think about the ROI of this trainer. One thing I see on internet forums all the time, and this is what I get into with hiring advisors, because of course we talk about fiduciary and fee only and all of the things to look for an advisor. But Paul, I don't even think that's the important thing. To broaden this even further, the BS argument I see in online forums is somebody says, hey, my financial advisor XYZ, and 50 people say, you're smart enough to do this yourself. Yeah. Fire your help because you're wasting money on fees. And that 
is the wrong argument because there ain't anything really super difficult in this. If you're doing personal finance correctly, I believe what this guy who wrote The Wealthy Barber, a guy named David Chilton, wrote in the early 90s. He said that maybe your strategy deep down has a little bit of complexity, but you should be able to, to write what you're doing on a bar napkin. Your idea should easily fit on a bar. And if you can't do that, then you really should fire your advisors because it doesn't need to be that complex. But of course you're smart enough. But that's not why I have advisors. I have advisors to make sure that I do those things that I value, that I actually stick to my plan. The problem isn't that we don't have good plans. The problem is, and I saw this, we always try to blow them up. You know, when you have behavioral people on your show, the behaviors are the thing. So Yeah, it's an emotional barrier. That's what they'll always talk about. The, yeah. To say that basically your advisor is there to keep you from from listening to your lizard brain, you know, who wants to do the investing for you. Or the lizard brain making it back about fitness. Lizard brain that every day says, Oh, you know what? It's kind of rainy out today. I'll go work out tomorrow. Yeah. I met it halfway today. I was going to run. I told you yesterday I was going to run. I decided to walk. So I met my lizard brain. <laughs> right. It's a drizzly, miserable morning here in Atlanta. So it's. Uh... But the reason I work out is because my coach is going to be there because I hire a trainer and the trainer's going to be in the gym waiting for me. And that's why I go. And guess who's better off because of it? You are. But the trainer also shows me good form shows me when I'm making mistakes so that when I go to the gym without a trainer, I'm not hurting myself, number one. And number two, I'm actually doing exercise at a pace and in a way that's going to make me better off. So my trainer makes me smarter. So first of all, you show up, you work out correctly, and you work out harder if you have a trainer. And your benefits are that time that you've spent, the 45 minutes or an hour or however much time you spend with your trainer is three times as effective as if you'd just done it on your own because you're just not as motivated. You're not accountable to anybody but yourself, and it's hard to be accountable to yourself. Somebody's sitting there watching me work out. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of dirty. I want to use an analogy for this because I think this is really important, Paul, before we pivot. Mary Barra, who runs General Motors, GM is not the company people talk about, by the way. When they talk about cars, they talk about Tesla, right? They talk about Riven. They talk about all these cool companies. The fact that Mary has kept General Motors relevant for as long as she has and kept them in the game is really a testament to her and the leadership that she's had at this Rust Belt company. Being a Detroit guy, I love watching GM. Mary has all these VPs that run all the pieces of the car, right? The design, the production, the whatever. Mary doesn't come into work twice a year. And just say, okay, car people, you guys do the car thing and I'll come back in six months and you tell me how we did. And I think that's the way people view their financial planner. That's the way they view financial advisors. You need to do what Mary does. You still got to show up every day. You have to go to all the meetings. You have to read all the stuff. You can't abdicate the throne to an advisor and then get angry at them because things didn't work out, which generally when I see advisory relationships that don't work, It's because you're not on the same page with your advisor. These people need to make you smarter, but you're still the CEO. You still should know everything that there is to know about what your strategy is and use these people to go even faster. That's the way I look at advisors. So if your advisor takes it from you and you have no idea what's going on, you need to fire them. 
you need to fire them. <laughs> and then you need to hire advisors where you are the CEO and you're in charge and they are making you go faster. That's who I think. Since we're talking about advisors, and I know a lot of people listening to the show either have advisors or, or should have advisors, there's a lot of people with a lot of assets that listen to this show. Some people that don't have that many assets, but hopefully will someday. What should I be paying for an advisor? And what services come along with that fee? You know, there's a lot of these robo-advisors now, Wealthfront and uh, sure. those kinds of things where, hey, I can optimize my portfolio. I can take tax uh, loss harvesting, all that kind of stuff. That can be automated. But a robo-advisor is a horrible name because a robo is not an advisor. And by the way, a good advisor is probably going to use robo-advisors in the background because all they are is asset diversification machines that put you on something that we talk about late in the book called the efficient frontier. Right. I hate the name, the efficient frontier, because it makes it unapproachable. It's this horrible phrase for something that I think is a hell of a lot easier than what it really is. I, I, when I hear efficient frontier, I picture Davy Crockett looking across the plains <laughs> and, and it, going, and it's so but efficient. is it efficient? And all the lines uh, of trees are in straight lines. There's nothing efficient about a frontier. There's, there's wild beasts and, and natives who aren't happy that you're there. Yeah. I tell this story about Dr. Harry Markowitz, who came up with this and won the Nobel Prize for this. And my story is probably not correct. And I say this in the book because we use a lot of humor. But I just imagine Markowitz one day, he's looking at cash and he's looking at it on two axes. One is reward, low return versus high return. And then the other axes He's got risk, low risk to high risk. And he mm -hmm. looks at his cash and he plots it. You were talking about plotting earlier. Yep. Low risk, low return. So it's a dot in the lower left. And then he looks at small company stocks, really aggressive stocks, and it's up and right. And he's like, whoa, this is cool. So he grabs some Chardonnay, pours himself a little bit, and he starts mixing up dots on this, on this line. Like your daughter has the dining room over here with all of her paint stuff. Markowitz is going crazy with these dots and he looks at where large company stocks are and they're kind of halfway between the two lower return, but lower risk than small companies, but way better than cash. Then he looks at bonds and now he's starting to fill these up. Then he realizes, well, what if I go 50% stocks, 50% bonds? And this is because he's on his second glass of Chardonnay and he's getting a little crazy. Mm -hmm. So now he plots another dot on that line. Well, what the efficient frontier is you take all these different diversified portfolios and you line them up and there are no dots north and left of this imaginary line. And what that means is historically for every time frame and tax consideration, there is a mix of investments that got you there most efficiently. You took the least amount of risk and got the highest return. Okay, Joe, what the hell did you just say? You're right. That's not funny at all. Let me tell you what that means. Okay. All of us have a dot. And there's two things we can do arbitrarily. We can move the dot straight up. What does that mean? I could be getting a higher return. I could be getting a much, in some cases, a much, much higher return and not take any more risk. Right. So if I don't want to change my sleep pattern at night, I could be doing better by moving up to the efficient frontier. And it's easy And that's to just do. something you do by changing your asset mix. And that's something that a- That a robo can that, do. That a robo can do. Or you could move left. You could get the same return you're getting now if you're not sleeping well at night. Mm -hmm. You could move left and you could take less risk, have the same result that you're getting now, but a lot less bumpy ride. 
which is great. But to your point, a robo can do all that stuff. Okay, so back to the question. What You don't want to talk about Markowitz getting hammered. <laughs> no, Dr. Markowitz sipping Chardonnay is not the point of this question. <laughs> the point of the question is to say, quite frankly and quite honestly, what does a registered investment advisor cost these days? Yeah, and you mixed up that question because you actually start with the second half of that question. not the Because you said, what do they charge and then what do I get? Which yes, is the yes. order... The order I see it in online publications all the time. Ask what their fees are. Ask how they charge fees. Yep, yep. It's like me walking into a car dealership and going, what does a car cost? <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Good so point. the first thing I want to ask is what's the performance? You got what any are- cars here today? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Ooh, that's expensive. How about some of that advice? <laughs> where, do you, where do you keep the, the good advice? So the first thing to ask is what am I going to get? Mm. That's the first thing to ask. How are we going to work together? Am I talking to you once a year? Am I talking to you every week? Are you living in my basement? Like what's happening here? Once I know that, then I look at what the fee structure is. And then I ask myself, what's the ROI here? Is there a return? And by the way, often your ROI, again, is not in that I'm going to take your investments and I'm going to magically make them phenomenal. It's I'm going to make it all dovetail. I'm going to make sure that my risk management strategy Maybe I save a bunch of money on insurances I don't need. Maybe I finally save money I wasn't able to save. Maybe I finally start, you know, if I have enough to last forever, maybe I start thinking bigger about my goals and I'm now going to set up some trust work to help area charities out where I wasn't doing any of that before. I don't know. So the first thing I want to ask is what type of car is it? And then I look at the fee, which Mm. is why... I can't answer your question. Okay, because everybody's financial situation is different. Everybody's family situation is different. And I remember when I was a young man, finally started making a little bit of money. I had stock options at Yahoo that were very much in the money. And I'm sure I made a bunch of mistakes selling them myself from a tax perspective and from selling ISOs when I should have been selling non-quals or whatever. What is the person with not with not a lot of assets but a lot of potential, what should they be looking for? The conundrum is, I need an advisor, but I don't have enough assets to justify it. Yeah. How do you get started in the- You're looking for advisors that don't manage money. You're looking for advisors that that charge an hourly rate Mm -hmm. to advise you on your situation and and aren't managers. There are people, I like the XY Planning Network is a good place to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a network of people that work with certified financial planners that work on a fee basis that are- a lot of the time working with those young, aggressively saving professionals trying to build their game. If you're somebody that actually is trying to get your budget in order, most financial planners are more worried about taxes and risk management and making sure that your bases are covered, more high level stuff. If you need somebody to really help you learn how to save that money you're making, right? I had a client that made $400,000 a year, could not save a dime. Wow. Could not save any money. It was very, and she was, by the way, being taken advantage of by everybody around her Mm. because they knew she had huge income. But my first job as an advisor was to help her set up a budget. But generally as an advisor, I never did that. There are financial coaches who actually do that. So you're actually looking for a financial coach that helps people budget. Okay. So on the other end of the spectrum, say I have five or $10 million and it's a big pie that I shouldn't be doing my own physical training. I shouldn't be doing my own management of my assets. Is it 1% a year? And talk about services. There's JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and the, the blue chip Goldman Sachs, blue chip type of people who probably are looking for more like 10 to 20 million. 
Yeah. Right. Is that 1%? Is it a half a point? What is it? I think if they're charging you more than 1%, I'd really question, I'd question that because I feel like the number is one or less uh, for those advisors. And again, it, it's going to depend on how much handholding they're going to do. Are they going to meet with you a lot? Are they going to not meet, meet with you very much? They're going to meet with you a lot and you really want to be in the trenches with them, then charging you 1% for that time, I can justify. If, if they're taking it and running with it, which I would question anyway, because uh, you're not being Mary Barra then, you're abdicating to somebody else, I would really question a fee that high. But I think 1% number is a tough number. You know, but you say that you shouldn't be doing it yourself. I really have come to change my feeling about this though, Paul. I don't think that with more assets comes incredibly more complex diversification. Mm. I mean, certainly the way that you think about taxes changes things because the friction in your investments is heavier when you're investing outside of a, an IRA or a 401k, five to $10 million. You really have to worry about the tax friction on that money. But outside of that, I still think a portfolio with index funds and maybe some alternative investments on the outside is still a good place to be. All right. Let's talk about some of the things in the book. You talk about debt. You say debt should be a DEA schedule one drug. If debt came in a pill form, it would be a DEA (laughs) schedule one drug, deadly addictive with no medical application. But debt does have a role to play in our lives. Yes. But if you have a healthy respect for debt, which I did not when I really struggled with money in the early nineties, if you don't have that healthy respect, it's easy to fall into a trap. Yes. And the trap is if I just make a little more money, my debt problem will solve itself. That is a lie, which is why we talk about negotiating and making more money is chapter three. After we talk about how to get a budget, lock down your expenses and have a vision because of the fact that the real key to winning is building a difference, building a delta between the amount you make and the, and the amount that you spend. The wider you can make that gap, the easier your life is going to be. But I always thought that if I just made a little more money when I was in debt, that my debt problems would be solved. Not the case. What changed? What changed all that for you? Well, boy, I had the worst day of my life, which is that I was so deep in debt. This is when I was a financial planner. And I was a total sham. I was a lie. I was living this life of debt, borrowing money from everybody that I had no credit. I had no cash. I had borrowed money from every family member that would loan me money. I had young kids at home. My wife was in school. I'm the sole breadwinner. I'm across town from my office and I run out of gas. And I'm digging in the car seats for whatever change I can get. Because I can't call anybody. There's nobody who's going to loan me another dime. Wow. And so I find 85 cents. And then a piece of this story will sound like, you know, an old guy telling the story. I walked a mile, but I really did walk a mile. <laughs> but there was, there was no snow and it wasn't uphill. Mm-hmm. But I walked a mile to this mobile station and this dude did not want to give me the gas can. He wanted to sell me the gas can because he thought I was going to steal the gas can. I finally convinced him. Then this is when I cried about money. I convinced him to give me the gas can. I put the 85 cents in it. I have no idea how 85 cents made it home, but I did make it home. But it was in that moment that I realized that I needed not just a much healthier respect for debt, but I need to start walking 
what I was telling other people to do, which is stop looking for the quick fix, build a real foundation. I couldn't be trusted with debt. I needed a cash only lifestyle at that point. And um, well, I had no alternative. I was going to live a cash lifestyle because nobody was going to give me money. What changes did you make? How did you reduce your burn or how did you reduce your expenses? Yeah. The first thing that I did actually, even before that was I went to people and I surrounded myself with smarter people. I changed my team and I changed my team to people that were going to help me and hold me accountable to having a plan that was much more foundational. The true keys were. It sounds like an alcoholic story. You hit rock bottom. And oh, you- I totally did. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I did was I ignored my creditors that I was already in the deepest with because mm-hmm. they couldn't hurt me anymore. My- <laughs> No, seriously, my credit was already shattered. And you I'm, can't do anything to me, Capital One. Well, they seriously couldn't do anything to me. It was done, right? I mean, I was already, I would have probably done better declaring bankruptcy. And I'm glad I didn't because I was able actually to get my act together in a much shorter time than I thought that I was, uh, was going to be able to. It took me about four years to build a really solid foundation, mm-hmm. which on a day-to-day basis, four years is a hell of a long time. But- in hindsight, four years to go from where I was in this horrible spot to actually having a solid foundation and now being able to think again already four years later to use leverage responsibly mm-hmm. is an amazing turnaround. But the first thing I did was I forgot about the creditors where I was already screwed and just made sure that anybody I was current with that I could get and stay on top of that to protect whatever credit I could get back Mm. that I could get. And then I cleaned that up. And then I went back to the creditors later after I built a foundation, because what happens is we get so far behind and we worry about things that we can't fix, that we can't create a brighter tomorrow. My first job was to put an emergency fund together to make sure that my budget, that I had enough cash in the bank, that if something bad happened, like my muffler's dragging behind the car. <laughs> yes. Well, even, you know, my young kids, if they got invited to a birthday party, I was screwed because I had to buy two $25 gifts and I didn't have any money. That's so sad. So, uh, yeah. I've been broke for a few years. I was broke for a few years in my early 20s after college. My dad gave me the awesome gift of letting me be broke for a while. <laughs> and now I've, you know, I've done very, very well and I've I've seen both ends of the spectrum one of the things that i've learned is that it's not about being rich there is no feeling more profound than achieving financial autonomy becoming your own financial adult and luxuries and cool cars are nothing compared to like a reliable car that starts when you turn the key or press the button that has air conditioning in the summers in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> like that's what it's all about. And I think what most people miss in our society is that they say they want to be rich. And it's like, no, you don't. Being rich starts with being your own financial person and being on top of it. And I'll never forget the day I paid off my student loans. That was the best day of my life, financially speaking. It is funny how you remember that. And so I think your mission of trying to subtly teach people this is an important one. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think the idea, I hope that when people finish my book or they listen to our show that they realize that the idea of being stacked is truly not having stacks and stacks of Benjamins. It's much more having stacks and stacks of doing the things that you really truly value and being able to get more life. I think that is what being stacked is all about. Right on. 
The book is called Stacked. The book is called Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. Hint, it's not super serious. It's actually very <laughs> fun, very funny. By my guest, Joe Saul Seahigh, and his co-writer, Emily Guy Birkin. A link to buy the book is in the show notes. Joe, where else can people find out more about you? You know what? Come hang out with other fun-loving money nerds on my 40 City Tour if we haven't been where you are. StackingBenjamins.com slash stacked. This will be coming out on March 29th. Yeah. So where are you going to be in April? I hit the Northeast. So Boston, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and D.C., before I fly to Indianapolis and then do a road trip, Indianapolis, Columbus, Cleveland, Detroit, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, two days in Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, and Minneapolis. Dude, that is impressive that you can just, <laughs> without a sheet of paper in front of you, read off all those days. It's been a long road planning this thing with our tour manager, and now it's just ingrained in my head where we're going. Before we hit then the middle of the country, so... Yeah. If you're on the West Coast or you're in Texas or the Southeast, I've already been there. So then just hang out on our podcast. After you listen to Crazy Money, come to Stacking Benjamins. We call it the greatest money show on earth because as Paul Ollinger knows, as much as anybody, it truly is a circus. Our goal is to make it a circus. I'm happy to be an occasional guest on your show. Thanks for doing mine. Yeah. Thanks a ton, man. Thank you so much, Joe Saul Dash. See hi. It was great to, uh, Spend some quality time with you while you were here in Atlanta on your book tour. Wishing you all the best for the rest of the journey there. Let's jump to the takeaways. First of all, uh, I was a little embarrassed in the way I asked that question about financial advising, about wealth management. How much does it cost, Joe? It's always how much does it cost? And of course, if you listen to Crazy Money, you know, we, we should be thinking more than just about the cost of things. We should be thinking about well, what does something cost relative to the value it creates in my life? Is something worth sacrificing X dollars and cents if it makes me healthier, if it makes me stronger, if it makes me more financially secure, if it helps me sleep at night? And yes, financial advice can be very, very expensive, especially if you have significant resources. But relative to those other things, your health, your peace of mind, your financial strength, all those things should be taken into consideration when finding out if a relationship with a financial advisor or wealth manager is right for you. Number two, don't be afraid to ask for help. Sometimes this money stuff can get pretty sticky. Even if you've got lots of fancy degrees in book learning, there's stuff that you are going to get wrong. And sometimes you'll get it wrong because you're analyzing something wrong. And sometimes you'll get it wrong because uh, you're too close to it emotionally. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Number three, I loved what Joe said about improving his team. It was the first thing he did to help him get out of the financial calamity that was his life when he was a younger adult. And I think that can't be overstated. If people around you are dragging you down or making you unhappy, change your team, even if they're family. You've got one life to live. You can't be held back by the people that are holding you back. You have no obligation to them. You can ask them to come along for the ride if they're willing to change your ways, but you are responsible for you. Make it count. Thanks so much for staying tuned all the way to the end. Next week, I will be back with a guy named Chip Conley. He is the founder of a thing called Modern Elder Academy, which is an institute to help people in middle age figure out how they can become the best selves and contribute back to the world. Until that time, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.